Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 109. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have three-time judo Olympian, Travis Stevens. Travis is a judo and jiu-jitsu black belt and the owner of Fuji Gym in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Travis shared a little bit of his judo competition journey and his competition mindset that took him to win the silver medal at the Rio Olympic Games in 2016. When I asked Travis about some of the biggest lessons he learned from Jimmy Pedro and his father, their judo coaches, his answer inspired me to title this episode, Formulas for Success. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on the topic, Formulas for Success. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free jiu-jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Travis Stevens. Travis holds black belts in judo and jiu-jitsu. He represented the United States in three Olympic Games, winning a silver medal in the 2016 Games in Rio. Travis owns Fuji Gym in Wakefield, Massachusetts, and is the marketing manager for Fuji Sports as well as being the co-owner of Judo Fanatics, the world's leading resource for judo instructional videos. Travis is also a co-owner of Project 2024, a nonprofit organization whose ultimate goal is to prepare America's judo team and international athletes for success at the Olympic Games. Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Man, awesome to have you here. I believe, I think the first time I saw you competing it was the Pan American Games in Rio 2007. Yeah, first internet, first big international tournament. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. I went there, man. That place was packed because, well, judo, you know how it is in, in Rio. And that day you compete against Flavio Canto, too. Yeah. And then he had like a nasty, like, you know, arm injury or something. You know what I mean? Seriously? Yeah. He posted and uh, yeah. dislocated his elbow when we were going. Yeah. Man, that was nasty. And that guy's tough, man. That guy's super tough. You know, and great jiu-jitsu, too. Yeah. So tell us, man, how martial arts show up in your life? And when did you start training judo? And eventually we talk more about uh, jiu-jitsu, too. But when did it start? It was, you know, 100% by accident. You know, I started a few weeks before my seventh birthday. I had to go to the local youth center to sign up for activities as a kid. Uh, kind of like the Metro Park Leagues that are free for everybody in the community. And my community just happened to offer judo. And when I was looking at the list of sports to sign up, I wanted to play baseball, soccer, football. 
And then I accidentally checked the wrong box and didn't check football and check judo. <laughs> when I got my list of activities and the times to be at the center, judo class was there. <laughs> so I got stuck with it. And I was hooked after like the first week. I was hooked. And when did you get involved with competition? Because I assume judo wasn't that big. You know, maybe a oh. lot of opportunities to compete. Yeah, I competed and took second uh, two weeks after my first class. Nice. Yeah. And then when did you start taking like, when you noticed that you wanted to take serious to really, you know, want to pursue this and compete out of state. And um, After my first year, I had been doing judo for about a year and a half and the junior nationals were in Hawaii and my coach decided to take four or five of us to go. And the event was massive. There were, I think upwards of like 2000, 3000 kids in the divisions and it was spread over like 12 or 14 mat areas. And like, it was back in the day when like things were written on paper still, mm -hmm. you know, like we didn't have computers and apps and things to do it for us. And my coach at the time that was traveling with me, he saw my, my weight and thought I was supposed to be in a division. So I actually fought junior nationals up an age group. Um, so instead of like the seven, eights, I was in the nine tens and I ended up going two and two and I was super devastated. Like I was in tears. I was crying. I hated every minute of it. And then we realized that they, we heard my name randomly through the loudspeaker that I was supposed to be on mat, whatever. And I got a second opportunity because I, my actual division hadn't gone yet. Mm. So later in the day, I put my gi on and I actually won junior nationals with a second opportunity. And that's when like, it kind of, the bug hit me and I, I was hooked. Right. And how do you, uh, do you remember, how do you feel mentally speaking? It was fun for you. Did you get nervous when you're younger competing? Was just normal for you? Super nervous, super nervous. But after losing in that first division and being so upset, I was excited. I was excited. Yeah. Like there's nothing, anybody, I don't care who you are. If you've competed and you've lost, the one thing you want is for them to start the division over again and go, no, 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 wait a minute. We got to do this again. This, this, that's not right. That's not what's supposed to happen. And I got that opportunity and I was happy for it. Mm -hmm. And when was your first international competition that you travel for the first time internationally? Um, it would have been probably when I was, uh, it would have been when I came back to judo after my teenage years, in my teenage years. Um, I used to travel up to Canada on the weekends to Steveston in British Columbia because they always had judo tournaments there and they had a big Japanese uh, population there. So people from Japan always came over and they brought teams over and they had a really good working relationship with a lot of colleges and universities. So you got to see, like, not only did you get to compete internationally, but when you watch the seniors compete, you got to see, like, high-level judo. And for you, still, you said you mentioned when you were younger and, of course, feeling nervous and then excited. But do you feel that this is something that as you start getting older, do you feel like every year getting stronger mentally, feeling more comfortable every year? How was for you when you start getting, like, bigger tournaments? Um you tend to there's like a weird threshold that you go through as an as an athlete where when you first start competing 
you're really nervous. And then when you start getting a little bit of success, you start to feel a little bit more confident. And then as that success starts to grow, then the nerves kick in again, because now you feel like you don't want to lose. Right. And then you start to make these jumps and these changes as an athlete. So when you're an international competitor or a higher level competitor, you get more nervous fighting local events. Like I would hate fighting nationals because everybody would treat it like they're Olympic games and they would come for your head. And I'm like, I don't even want to be here right now. <laughs> like this feels like it's not worth my time and it's hard to get motivated. It's hard to get up for it. It's like you're competing like almost handicapped. And then once you make that change, you actually get excited to fight world number ones, world number two is where it's like, Oh, I'm coming for the next spot. Like I'm going to prove I deserve to be in the top five. But when you fight against somebody that's like, you know, down on the list, they're like 35, 40, and they're hungry. It's like, I don't really feel like I want to do this right now. This is just going to be a tough match. It's going to make me tired for later on in the day. And again, you compete with like handicaps. And so when you're in those stages where it's mentally challenging or nervous, I find that I get more nervous fighting people that are way lower than me. There's a gray area in there, right? Where if they're really bad, you just don't care. Cause like the, the odds of like ever losing are so far gone, but when they're up and coming, but they're not perceived as top of the division, that's when like the nerves kick in a little bit. Cause you're like, Hey, if I don't pay attention, I could get caught. But then when you fight people at your level or higher, you actually get excited because the, thrill is there to improve and show the world like hey i'm i'm here so at the olympic games it was always like no nerves good i love that event the world championships on the other hand where you know you've got to fight all the extra matches there's other people there you're competing injured tired because you were competing all summer it's a, it's a little bit different for me and how old are you when you figured out that you wanted to pursue the Olympics? Man, I was like, I was 16. Right when I came back to judo after my injury, I was like, I'm doing this full time. This is going to be my number one focus. Not school, not health, not work. It's going to be everything is going to revolve around my goal of being an Olympic medalist. And you just mentioned about you know, coming back from injury. That's just a personal opinion, but I feel that, man, judo, it's a lot more brutal in the body than jiu-jitsu. That's it's just my uh, night, night and day, night and day. Yeah, it's, I mean, you might as well, yeah, I, I wouldn't even know how to explain it because it's, there's no, like, physical beating that you take when you do jiu-jitsu because the, the pressures aren't there and the impact's not there. Mm -hmm. it's like it's like laying on the ground versus like hey i'm gonna jump six feet in the air and then i'm just gonna i'm not just gonna fall on the ground somebody's gonna throw me down as hard as they can like you don't really get that and and the little bit of takedowns and the little bit of like impact that you do see in jiu-jitsu it's still very mild because both people aren't physically trying to not be on the floor right so if I'm throwing somebody in jujitsu, for example, like they actually don't mind being down there and they're trying to establish their guard as you're taking them down. Where a judo player is like, I don't want to be on the floor. 
So when they're fighting that, it gives you that added tension to like really put extra force into putting them down. Just landing shoulders or tweaking ankles and knees. and Even as far as like your head, right? Like head, boom, True. right onto the floor. Like my Olympic final, the guy picked me up like four feet in the air, head straight down, face first, right into the mat. And you just, you don't put your hands out because you got to make sure that he doesn't turn you. So you're still pulling with your hands. You just got to look at the floor and go, here we go. It is what it is. Man. Um, where are the places that you train? Because you, in judo, the interesting thing is that you get to compete and do, they have those training camps after, right? A few days. What is some of the, uh, what is the toughest training camp that you, you had after your competition that you really impressed with the guys that you train? Um, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, they're all pretty much, you know, you get into it, what you put into it, right? You get out of it, what you put into it. It's just, it is what it is. And it, it really matters how you're going into it. Um, and how your event went the day before and your, your toughest training camps for me personally are the ones where you've had a really bad performance you know, you're, you're at the tail end of like a season, like a quarter and you know, you went one and one, you went all in one, you went all in two, whatever that number is. And you hit training camp. Cause now you're actually gunning for everybody. You're like, no, I'm, I, I embarrassed myself once before. I'm not embarrassing myself now. And you start headhunting and you're like, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to beat you up. And you don't give an inch, but when you win a tournament, and you go to training camp, then everybody's asking you to go. And then like you have that confidence, like, oh, this is easy, right? You're not trying to prove something. And so the mentality changes during training when you have to forcibly make every opportunity happen versus having the confidence to just say, hey, I won the event. Like, I don't, what do you want me to do? And then it slows down the judo a little bit where like your techniques start working and start flowing. It's, it's kind of like when you're at practice and all of a sudden you're frustrated and you go down that rabbit hole of frustration, practice just gets harder hmm. and then techniques work less, this works less and you get more frustrated and things work even less. You just go down that rabbit hole that can happen at training camps and that can, those will be the toughest ones you ever go through because you'll want to just, there's nobody there to stop you. You could just walk out the door. True. I've done it. Like you just, you know what? I'm done take my gear off, throw it on the floor, kick it in the trash and leave. True. Uh, many years ago, I started this list of the mental mistakes that competitors make and how to avoid them. So when you look back, what is it, one of the main mental mistakes that you made? And nowadays you, you talk with the young athletes and say like, yo, I've done this before. And you know, try to talk with them and share this experience. What comes to your mind? Um, Preparing mentally too early, um, leading to fatigue. Hmm. Um, as an example, I, I see it with young athletes all the time, right? They're, they're like, their match is coming up and it, they could be up in five matches. They could be up in 10 matches. It doesn't matter. But like they try to get into the competition mode from like the second they walk in the door and they got their headphones on. They don't talk to anybody. And what they're doing is, they're 
they're elevating that level of stress and that heightened sense of awareness. And then they try to carry it for prolonged periods of time. And by the time that match comes, their heart rate hasn't been rested. They've actually been like at a slight jog for the last three or four hours because their anxiety levels have been raised because they're trying to walk around all tough. They're trying to get focused. They're, you know, they're bopping their head to their music, trying to like get psyched up. But it's like, hey, man, like you don't fight for 40 minutes. Take a chill pill. Talk to some people. Relax. When your time comes, like flip that switch. And it's it's hard for people to flip that switch. They feel like when they when people see them that day of, like nobody can be my friend. Like nobody talked to me. I'm I'm focused. And it's like you're just telling yourself you're focused. You're not actually focused. You're focused on trying to be focused. You're not focused on actually trying to win. Um, that would be one. Another one that I think a lot of people make mistakes with that I personally did in my career and I didn't realize it until after I started seeing a sports psychologist was stop trying to picture yourself winning with particular moves. A lot of athletes, you know, they'll go, Hey, I'm going to throw this guy. They picture in their mind. They're like, I'm going to throw this guy with this throw and they can see it and they can see it. And then when they go out there, the opportunity to actually do that throw never happens but they're so dead set mentally on, hey, I'm, I'm going to throw this guy for Epong or I'm going to submit this guy that they actually forget how to do judo or participate or make changes or develop or adapt to where like they can win easily. They just they get laser focused on this thing. And what happens is the time runs down on the clock. And then with 30 seconds to go, they go, oh, now I got to win. Cause that thing that I've been trying to do for the last four minutes, five minutes, whatever it is, hasn't been working. And it's like, you missed all those opportunities, mm. right? The goal when you step out onto the mat is to win, not to win a specific way. There are some times where like an athlete is overly developed then he's competing locally and he's like, Hey, we're going to work on some things and we're going to use this for developmental reasons. But for the most part, like when all else fails, like make sure you win. And I think a lot of athletes struggle with that. Nice. No, uh, that was going to be my next question. If we have done some work with, you know, sports psychologists before, what is another maybe a little tip that you got from them? Um, another big one that I got was don't try to envision particular things in matches happening. Um, because what happens is, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people have, done this but never really realized they've done it um when you're mentally preparing for matches like let's say the worlds are coming up in two weeks and you're thinking about all the people that you're going to have to compete against and what the final is going to be like and the semi-final who could be my round number one don't think about the actual physical techniques that you are going to apply or don't see yourself doing like a Baron Bolo to the guy in the final or that drop sale that you hit at the last tournament in the final of the worlds. Because what happens is as you're picturing those things, a lot of times you're going to have this, this, it's like a slight sliver of doubt that'll, that'll seep through your head. If you've been thinking about it for too long and you've been really trying to focus where it's like, oh, but he could spin out of that. 
oh, but if he spins out of it, then I'm going to counter with this. And you start going down this rabbit hole of like these what if scenarios and these counters and all it's doing are feeding these little slivers of doubt that eventually will build up into these big things where when you step out onto that mat, you have no idea how you're going to win. All you've been thinking about are the ways he's going to get out of everything you're going to do. And it's, and it just leads to a self-destructive mentality. So one of the things that they had recommend I do is to actually sit down and focus on the emotional side of it, where it's like, Hey, I want, I want you to feel what it's like to like step onto the mat for the first time. Like when you walk out there and your opponent's standing across, like, what do you feel? Do you feel anxiety? Do you feel stress? Are your palms sweaty? Like, how's your breathing? And just think about the actual physical attributes that your body has when it's going to go do that activity. Like, think about what it's like. Like, how do you feel a minute into the match? Do your fingers hurt? Does your, does your throat burn because you didn't get a proper warm up? Like, are your biceps tired? Like, does your foot hurt? And when you start thinking about the actual physical elements that your body exudes while going through the activity, you'll, your body and your heart rate will start to rise because it's feeling it, right? It's not so much about like, oh, I did this technique or that technique. You're training your body to fight those matches and get comfortable with the stresses. It's not that I don't have them. It's that they're normal. They're my normal. Right. Like if you wake up every day at 5 a.m. and go to bed every day at 10 p.m., that's just normal. You get used to that level of uncomfortable. And it was it was learning how to develop that I could fight 100 tournaments a year because I could do it in my head where I could actually get goosebumps. I could get my hair on my arm to stand up. Right. I could I could get my heart rate to rise just by the act of thinking about it. And I could train my body just physically and mentally to prepare. Nice. Now, when you competed, did you like studying opponents? Because people have always ask when I interview uh, high-level athletes or coaches, and I always ask, you know, if people, some people have different views about this. How were you about studying opponents? Um, I, th- I agree with you. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, I think for visual learners it's important um for for me personally i never really watched videos of me with somebody else my my way of training was watching my opponents fight other people um specifically right-sided players because i'm i'm a righty like i wouldn't want to watch them fight a left-handed player because then it's it's irrelevant to our situation um and then after having some of that knowledge, I would base my interactions with that player. And then I would take those two things and mold it together to make a game plan. So like I look for in, I look for consistencies inside my players that they do across the board to me, to that guy and the other guy to get a common, a common line. And then I can pick and choose which things I can exploit or not exploit. Right. Because what you don't want to do, what you don't want to do and what a lot of young athletes do is they watch tape on athletes and then they become like, you know, the armchair quarterback where it's like, oh, I would make this play. I would make that play. I would do this. And it's like you don't think the guy in the video you're watching thinks that 
there's obviously something going on that's not allowing him or her or that person to do whatever it is you're thinking of doing. Or maybe it's just not in their repertoire. There's all these like what if scenarios. And until you've actually like felt it and tried it, you actually don't really have real information that you could make an informed decision on. So I look for consistencies within my opponent across multiple people. And then I look at personal experiences to build a game plan because when I'm training with that person, I actually want to find out if they can throw, if they can score, if they can counter. I don't mind winning or losing at practice. Like I trained with the Russian that beat me in the Olympic final a month before the Olympics. And I actually let him try to throw me with Uchimata. Never once happened. So in the Olympic final, I kept putting myself in the situation where it's like, hey, try to throw me with Uchimata. I know you can lift me up in the air. I know you can knock me down, but you've never turned me to my back. So that's where I want to live, right? He feels comfortable throwing it. I know he can't score with it. And now inside that common ground, I got to figure out how I'm going to win. I mean, obviously it backfired in the Olympic final, but I got there with that mentality, Mm -hmm. right? You never want to, you never want to change your game plan or your strategies based on the outcome of a particular match. You have to give credit where credit is due. Because for every technique, there's always a counter. And you know what? That guy can make a good move. No problem. You have to, you have to be comfortable in living with that. Otherwise, you're just going to train and compete in fear of always losing. True. Now, do you watch your opponents during tournaments? All the time. And training camps. A lot in training camps. Okay, so not just the video, but if you have opportunity between matches, it kind of like just yeah. Even even the guys that you already have studied too, because you always have to find those like common grounds, the common movement patterns. Like, does he only get thrown when he walks to his left? Does he only get thrown backwards? At what minute in the match does he usually get thrown? Right? At what minute in the match does that guy mentally break if he hasn't scored? Right. What tactical differences does he have in minute three versus minute two? Does he start minute one the same way he ends minute four? Like you got to look at like commonalities within the player because you can, you can see differences, right? Like one of the big common things you could look from an experienced practitioner versus a guy that gets lucky is once they're winning, right? Like let's say, I'm, I'm doing judo and we're two minutes into this round and it's no score. And then 30 seconds go by and we're into like the three minute mark and I throw them and there's like a minute left in the match. And I, I make a tactical change in my judo to protect the lead. That's an inexperienced player because you were winning. You were winning the whole time. There was no tactical change for anything. You may not need to go for like a big score because you you run the risk of getting counter, but tactically speaking, movement wise speaking, that you shouldn't ever make a change because he's not winning. He hasn't yet given you a reason to make a tactical change. Makes sense. You looked at the scoreboard and made a tactical change and you can see people's inconsistencies when they fight of like, oh, you're, you don't know how to win yet. You can win, but you don't know how to. 
And there's a big differentiating factor in there as an athlete. For sure. What, what is a scenario that comes to your mind that you remember that you studied and you prepared and then you're able to execute, you know, during the conference? Of course, there's like probably hundreds of them, but what is something that was very interesting to you? That you put the study? Yeah. 2016. The Olympics? Yeah. 2016 was the, the one where it was like, oh, we could write this down on a piece of paper and then that's what happened during the day. Like we knew, like I had never actually trained with the Bulgarian that I fought in the quarters and never competed against him. We've been in the same tournament, but we've always missed each other in the bracket. But when we were watching him and we were watching films, we knew that if I just pushed on him, right, and it was even, and if I just pushed him and kept pushing him, he would use that sumi to get out of the situation because he doesn't want to get thrown. He, he, it's almost like an inherent panic where he uses that throw as a defense mechanism. Got it. Now, if you know me as a player, you know, if you fall to your back, I'm passing your guard. That's just, it is what it is. I'm doing it. You don't do that. But I knew because watching him train at the training camps and watching him compete that if I push him, he just, he just trained it into his body right? Because when you're on the stage, like you're just doing what's natural. And because he hasn't actually made a like mental check of like, hey, for this round, I'm never going to do this throw. He's just training to train and he's a good player, but he hasn't reached that next level of actually controlling the flow and outcome of every match. And so when you look at it, you're like, okay, let's just push him. When he gets tired, he'll break. And sure enough, I think it was two minutes in. He did that sumi, passed his guard, pinned him, game over. Simple. Nice. And now let's talk about jiu-jitsu. When did you decide to implement jiu-jitsu and how much, of course, this is a, a easy question, how much that evolved your game? Of course it did. But when, when did you start? It was something that you noticed, hey, I need to improve my ground. I mean, what motivated you to look for jiu-jitsu? Um, I started going to jujitsu class back in like, oh, when was it? It must've been like 2000, 2004 maybe. Cause I was training at San, no 2005. I was training at San Jose state and they only had one judo class a day. And I, I felt like I needed to do extra and the room was a little light as far as like, the physicality that you could get out of the room. Cause I was a very physical player. Um, and one of the other players on the team and coaches, he used to go to AKA with Dave Camarillo, just to do jujitsu, roll around, hang out with the guys. And he invited me one day. And so I used to go there and we used to just grapple with all the MMA people, you know, John fish, Josh Thompson, Josh Crosscheck, all those guys. We used to just, wrestle, grapple, train, gi, no gi, didn't really matter. It was more about just, hey, we all like to train. Let's just work hard. And then that led to just, oh, you have class with the MMA guys at like 7, 8 a.m. I'll be there. Oh, there was a judo like basic class in the afternoons. It's like, oh, I'll be there. And that lasted for about, I'd say three, four months maybe. And then I got kicked out of San Jose State and then went home. And then I didn't do 
another jujitsu thing until 2012 when I walked into Henzo's for the first time. Mm-hmm. I had a Liz Frank fracture in my right foot and the Olympic games were coming up in a few months. And I was like, I got to train. Like I, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. And I had spoke to Jimmy and Jimmy and Henzo had had a working relationship, called Henzo on the phone. He said, sure, he can come down anytime. Just have him sign a waiver in the office. And there we go. Never looked back. I don't. And what are the things that right away you noticed they made a difference in your judo game as far as as far as ground awareness that you didn't have before? Um, I'm not so sure it, it did anything for my actual judo like skill set on the things I did for judo as far as like the submissions I used, the pins I used. If if it did anything, it gave me a higher level of conditioning on the ground because it's, it is different. Like when you're on your feet and you're training and you're doing stuff versus when you're on your ground, they are two different elements that have to be trained. And then there's obviously a transitional part in the middle, but it gave me a heightened level of conditioning so that when I was at judo or in competitions, I was more comfortable pushing a tempo Cause it didn't make me as tired because I was on the ground with higher level people at a higher tempo. Cause I was already good on the ground as far as judo is concerned. So when I would be at judo practice and training on the ground, it was like, it was like a warm up almost. But when you go to jujitsu and you run into guys like Henzo, John, Igor, Gregor, Holes, and you're training with them, like those are higher level guys. Those are good guys. Those are guys that are like pushing the tempo and you are actually in a fight. Like, Oh, I've actually got to work now. So it, it raised that level of, I guess, physical strength on the ground, but also the conditioning side of it. Mm-hmm. Did you have a, tr- a chance to train with Flavio Conto in any of those camps, like in, uh, on the ground? I trained with Flavio one time on the ground. Uh, we were in England at the time and he was actually there teaching not it was just a british only camp i just happened to be there i can't even remember why now i think our whole team was there but he was teaching some stuff and we got to do one round Mm -hmm. yeah he's a guy that a lot of jujitsu people always give him so many props and like man uh, aggressive style on the ground too you know i mean definitely he always stood out in at least in brazil as far as the brazilian players of being a ground and amazingly, I think now it's getting a little better, but so many Brazilians did not take advantage of training ground in Brazil as much as yeah. they, they should. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's definitely a true statement. <laughs> yeah. And what about here in us? What's the level of judo right now? And even the, the current team, do they focus, do they work on ground too? Uh, no, only standing. They actually try to avoid ground at all costs across the board for at least our senior players. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about the juniors. Man. Yeah, there's no groundwork done. It's kind of disappointing. Yeah, that's kind of crazy because it's, it's such an It's really weapon. disappointing. It's really disappointing because when you look at the people who have had the most success coming from the U.S., 
none of us across the board would ever have had the success we had without having groundwork. I remember talking to Jimmy one time about it and I was like, I think we should go back if we have ever had the time or somebody who ever listens to this should probably do it, but go back to all of our big medals like Pan Ams, World Championships, Olympic Games, Paris, Tokyo, and then try to find out how many medals we've actually won and then find out how many medals we won where we didn't go through the bracket and won a match on the ground. Because I don't know if there's an event where I didn't. At some point, you run into somebody who's a thrower that you just end up pinning because he misses a throw or you end up arm locking or transitioning. So when you remove all the medals that we wouldn't have had having not won matches on the ground, the fact that players avoid learning it because they don't like it or it's not as flashy or whatever that is, it, it just seems ludicrous to me. Like I struggled to wrap my head around it. Did you have any tournament that you won all matches on the ground? Um, yeah. I'm sure I have. I know Kayla won the Olympics in Rio all on the ground. Nice. Now, uh, so two questions. One is favorite performance when you look back that you said, man, everything went well. And sometimes your best performance doesn't come with a gold medal. It just, you felt like, man, everything I trained well, I performed well. Sometimes you did great, but your opponent did great as well. But what's the performance that comes to your mind? Oof. Um, it would have been 2010 at the, the Germany Grand Prix. Um, I was young and I, I was, I hadn't quite broken the barrier yet in 2010 of like, oh, I'm consistently stepping on podiums, right? Like I would win matches here and there, three and two, three and eh, three and one sometimes, but like I would be tough rounds for people that always meddled and I would beat people that didn't have a chance. So I was in like a, I, I would call myself like a solid, like seventh place, fifth place guy, right? Like I was consistently down there, but in Germany, when I showed up, like I beat the Ole Bischoff, who was the current Olympic champion in the second round. I beat a Russian in the semifinal. I beat a Russian in the final. And like, I felt like I had actually like solidified my slot as like, oh, hey guys, I'm, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. It's huge for your confidence. And yeah, especially because I, I beat Ole in Germany. Like I beat the Olympic champ in Germany. So like that did a lot for me. And Germany is one of the like prized tournaments on our circuit as far as judo is concerned. And what about a performance that you look back and say, man, I did not end up playing my, my best, you know, and what did you learn from that experience? Um, I mean, you could, there's slews of them. I mean, I showed up in Austria at a world cup one time and I got thrown and I think there was four seconds on the clock and then I just went home. Um, but I think the, the big one would be the London 2012 Olympics. That's one that like really resonates where like my immaturity really kind of shine through. Cause I just couldn't, 
you know, it's, it's kind of like if you have a really bad practice, I think a lot of people will relate to this. If you have a really bad practice and then you go home, you're kind of just a miserable person, but it's like your family didn't do anything to you. Your friends didn't do anything to you. Like you still have running water. Like it's just, it's like once the act of like winning or losing has happened, that ability to just like, oh, I'm in the present now that's in the past. This is a different time frame. Let's let's readjust and move forward. And I in London, I carried all that baggage from that semifinal loss where I had felt cheated. And I brought it all the way into the bronze medal where I all I could do during the match was focus on how I lost the semi. And I just I wasn't mature enough to just leave the baggage there. Say, hey, I'm fighting for an Olympic medal. Guess what? 95% of the rest of the field isn't. <laughs> Let's focus on the positivities of the day and get our head back in it and understand that I beat the guy I'm fighting for a bronze five weeks ago. And let's come up with a game plan to beat him again so that we can, you know, improve upon the day. I was like, nope, F that guy, F this event, F England. I don't want any part of this. You guys all suck. And I just, I lost because of it. Man. I just couldn't, couldn't keep it together. Now let's talk about this transition now from, uh, are you retired from judo? competing uh, in judo or you said you still would, would be down to still compete or technically technically I never actually retired mm -hmm. um, I'm still on the active list as far as like I could put my name in and go compete tomorrow okay well, obviously not right now but mm -hmm. in theory um, do you still have the itch no not even a little bit not even a little bit It just doesn't, it just doesn't excite me anymore. Yeah, for Sorry. sure. Just, just go through the whole process or even because since you've been in the Olympics, like what else, you know, out there for you to really get motivated to, to go after? Um, it's not even that it's, it's, it's just where I'm at today. I'm so far from the athlete I used to be. I'm just, I'm so far from there that the amount of work it would take for me to get back there is a huge, huge commitment. It's massive. And people, people will never understand um, how big of a commitment and how hard it would be to get back there because they haven't been there. Right. And the other thing a lot of people don't realize is when you're trying to improve, the better you get, the harder you have to work to get the smallest bit of improvement. It like those next rungs and like the levels, they just get farther and farther and farther away where it's like, yeah, like you could train an extra session a day, but that's not going to be enough to get to that next level. You need something more. And I just don't have that drive to get to those next levels. Like I'm still at a level where it's like, Hey, anybody that walks through my gym doors, I could train with, and it would be a good solid round. Could I win? Probably not. Would I submit them? Probably not. But that's because like working towards a submission takes that extra bit of work 
that I just don't want to put in. I'll pass your guard. You can recover. We'll play around a little bit. Like if something's there, it's great, but I don't care. I have nothing to prove to anybody. Yeah. One thing that I always mentioned that it's so special in Olympic athletes that jujitsu people don't realize it's a four year cycle that and like, okay, you lose the world's cool. You got a few turn in, in jujitsu. Now you get a few tournaments, you get some points and then you now, and then you compete. But in judo, it's like, man, in wrestling four years. The other thing a lot of jujitsu guys don't understand is like, they don't really work for anything. Like they don't, they just do what they want to do whenever they want to do it. And then they call themselves professionals. It's not, that's not how the judo scene works. Like you've actually got to be the number one person in your entire country. Then you've got to actually maintain it. Then you got to go overseas while maintaining this position to prove to the rest of the world that you're good enough to compete with them and win and then maintain that position. And a lot of times if you can maintain that one, it maintains the other one. But in a sport like wrestling, it doesn't. Japan and judo, it doesn't. You could be out just because of an event. A couple bad performances, you're gone. The USOC tried to cut me in 2015 from the entire US team. They're like, hey, just put him into retirement. He's done. We don't think he's going to medal in Rio. Man. And like people, people don't get it. And it's hard to get the, the level of jujitsu to where it is in judo because they don't understand that because they've never really worked for it. Like what if, what if only one person got to go to the world in the entire U.S. per weight? Mm-hmm. Then what would it mean? Then when you step onto the mat at the world, what are you really competing for? Because you would have actually earned an, a legitimate spot. But when you can just, you know, compete a few times a year, get a couple of points, show up, like judo players are on circuit year round we compete i competed 15 to 18 times a year internationally and that's just to qualify for the games and a lot of people do more tournaments and still never qualify obviously there's good ones that do less but there's still like a level of uncertainty where if you get injured you may never go you could get passed up by somebody else in your country Man, that's it is uh, it is crazy. Like I, that's why I appreciate that. I had the interview with Jimmy. It was was awesome, and but people didn't have a chance um, check it out. A few few episodes ago, what is some of the especially him being the champion that that he was everything that he accomplished so much experience what one of the main things that he was able to pass of course so many things but one of the main things that he was able to be crucial in your career competitive career um i was always talented i was always strong i was always in good shape i always had a desire to win but what jimmy and his father did was they taught me how to you don't just get to like show up. There's a, there's a way where you can win consistently. 
And you see it across all industries where people at the highest levels, they talk about formulas for success. Judo has that formula. Jiu-jitsu has that formula. It's just a lot of people, they doubt and they complain and they naysay because maybe it doesn't work for them and they don't want to conform to the formula. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they were like, no, I'm going to do it my way, but I like to do this over here. And it's like, you're not sticking to the formula. If you want to win, like stick to the formula and their ego gets involved. And I fought the formula for a few years and Jimmy's father even tried to throw me out of the club. He was like, just send him home. I want nothing to do with him. I was in Korea and he had kicked down my hotel room door, started screaming at me. <laughs> um, but once it started clicking in and I started adapting the formula to like what I had already known and blending them together, like success came really easy and you started to see it. And once you see it and once you feel it, you can't go back. Like it feels weird to go back and do judo another way. Now, how did you transfer that the learnings from that formula to your gym, to everything else you do? So we're going to talk a little bit now about some of your, the projects that you have right now. So how do you transfer all that to your gym and everything else? Um, I, you know, I think the easiest, easiest way to do it is like, what are you like, what are you looking for in life? Like, I want, I want to run a professional school. Okay, so go ask somebody that runs a professional school, go do what they say, see what they do, see what software they use, see what their class times look like, see what their class structure looks like, see what their business model does, and then do it. Like, why, like, why do you have to put your own flair on it because your ego is kind of in the way? And I run into that with a lot of people. You know, I, I got into an argument one time with a guy because we were building a website and I know a guy that runs a multi-million dollar business building websites on conversions. So I asked him and I said, Hey, we have this landing page. Can you give any recommendations? And he gave two or three, right? And one of the recommendations was the buy button on our particular website. He goes, make it green. Just like that. He was like, make it green. And the guy sitting next to me and he's like, well, I read this thing online that said there's no actual real statistical advantage to it being green, red, or blue. All three work. So can we just make it blue? And it was like, why would you do that? People, people don't realize how often they do that in life where they give their input with no actual real education or life experience, successful experience in the, that particular field. And that's one thing that like I've been able to do just even off the mat is like Jimmy was a professional coach and a professional judo player that gave professional advice. And I took it. So when I need to do something, I seek the help of professionals, I implement it, and then I look at the data and say, okay, well, this isn't necessarily working and we make adjustments because that's what they all do in business and in life. They, they take a common thing, they implement it, and then they make micro adjustments to the plan to get it to fit whatever 
it is they're doing. And that's, and that's pretty much all we do. It, it's basically a rinse and repeat process. Ask a professional, implement it, make adjustments to fine tune it for you. Boom. Professional business. Nice. So your gym, what do you offer in your gym? Just jujitsu. Just jujitsu, right on. Yep. And do you guys do, so do you teach classes or you have someone to teach for you? Um, I teach all the classes currently. Right on. And how you blend in your judo and with a lot of takedowns, how does that work with you? I'm actually curious. Um, almost zero takedowns. They learn a single leg, a double leg, and a collar drag. And usually an arm drag to the back. After that, it's non-existent. Right on. And, and what was your choice for like not exploring as much as just toughen a body or what do you think? Um, I don't run a school because I want to create, you know, the next world champion. Like I don't have the time. I don't have the desire. I don't, I don't have the clientele for one. Um, a lot of my students, they come for a couple of things. They come for the community. They come to get a great workout. It's great for self-defense and it's something fun that they enjoy doing because they like that like physical aspect of the sport where they're in a fight, but they're not in a fight and they can go to work the next day. Mm -hmm. Like you want to show up to judo class and feel like you're in a fight. Like you are going to struggle to go to work the next day because mm -hmm. your fingers are going to hurt. You're going to be able to type on a keyboard because your body's not conditioned to it. So I make sure I just, I fill those buckets during class where like they get a bunch of knowledge they break a sweat, they get to talk to each other, and they get to go at their own pace. Right on. Now, tell me a little bit more about your marketing uh, work with Fuji Sports. So how do you help uh, school owners? How we help school owners specifically? Yeah, as far as your position, you know, so what, what is your, your role as a, the, the marketing manager for Fuji Sports? So is, do you work directly with school owners or not necessarily? Um, we have a guy that's in charge of the wholesale department, which is for school owners. Mm -hmm. My job works through all the paid advertisement, um, mm -hmm. organic okay. traffic, social media, product development, product photography, design, um, photoshopping, illustrator, outreaching with designers. Okay. A little, little bit of everything. And what about the Judah fanatics? What about the project? How's that going? Uh, it's going well. Um, we were we were really like in like a really good trajectory because we had started March of 2019 uh, filming our first couple of people and then we launched in June. And then I was on the road like every weekend filming throughout Europe, Asia. And then I was actually on my way back from France where we had filmed three other people. And we had had this schedule lined up to like travel throughout the summer to get all these people filmed. And then COVID hit. And then we kind of, kind of hit a standstill, but we're at a point now where like we found some resources in Europe. We found some resources in California, some in um, Canada where like some people can get some filming done. Mm -hmm. So it's still, it's still building. Um, but it'll be the world's leading information hub for, for judo soon. Yeah. How, how has been the response so far 
for is that mainly judo practitioners really going after or like jujitsu yeah. jiu uh, too some some jujitsu guys go there um i venture to say they're the ones in their 40s that are a little bit bigger that know that they need a takedown to win masters worlds mm -hmm. but uh, most of them are judo just trying to get a little bit of information that they can take to their club and implement i think a lot of school owners are making purchases to try to teach how certain players are doing their Uchimata, their Sayanagi to get feedback. For sure. And what about the project that you have for preparing the American, uh, America's judo team for the high level competitions? That is a nonprofit uh, organization. So how's that going? Um, super slow now that COVID hit. Um, we lost our entire summer plan and summer schedule. Um, we were doing really well at first. We had raised like $250,000 in year one. Um, we made, I think like a hundred and hundred thousand, 150,000 in revenue from running camps and clinics across the country. Um, we were taking teams, we took teams to Canada, Europe. Um, I think we went a couple of places in the States last year before December hit. And then we had planned on going to a few places in Europe over the summer. We did three weeks in Europe last summer, but with COVID, like we just can't, mm -hmm. there's nothing. And it's, it's hard to, cause judo is such like a standing sport to like be able to learn and feel because judo changes dynamically. If your partner weighs 20 pounds heavier than what you're used to, like your throw and your foot placement can change. If he's three inches taller or three inches shorter, like the bend in your knee has to change. And it's when you're dealing with young kids that are 14, 15 years old, that are, that are growing, like one month he could be five, two, the next month he could be five, six. Like you, you really got to be hands-on to, to work with them and help them, you know, develop through their growth. But hopefully by 2021, we can, we can get back on the road and hopefully everybody's been working hard at home. What are the top like three, three to five countries in the world now in judo? Um, Japan would be one. France would be another. Um, third one's tough. Uh, the third one, you kind of start to get into like a little bit of a gray area. Um, yeah, I'm not sure who the third would be. I mean, you could, you could pick from Georgia to Germany to Korea might be in there. Hmm. It's hard to say. Right on. Now let's talk about some some of your habits here. What do you say it's a habit that you practice daily that helped you in the past and you still do to the same? It's very simple, but anything that uh but it could be very simple. Be out my door by 6 30. Right on. And that's for work to work out or whatever? For work. Mm-hmm. And are you into reading or audiobooks or anything like that? Mm -mm. Any 
podcasts or anything that you consume now? Nope. I, I work day in, day out, and I like to have conversations and meetings with professionals, not because, like, I, I understand that, like, their overall uh, podcast or the information they're giving out is very general, just mm -hmm. like I do for my YouTube channel. It's very general as, like, a thought. It's like, hey, you could do this. And you, but don't forget that, like, if you want those finer details on how you're actually going to implement it in a live scenario, like, you got to call me because I don't give those things out on the YouTube channel because it only applies to a very select group of people. So I usually have all those conversations and meetings privately in person or through calls like this. Got it. What'd you say is one of the best advice you've ever received in anything, judo, life? anything uh um i guess financially it's important to make sure that your income comes from three to five different locations mm -hmm. make sure you're diverse enough to have a little bit of financial freedom where you're not solely dependent on one thing or another and it helps to um, relieve the stress of perfection in one area of your life, because if it fails, you know, you have another two that you could put a little bit more time and energy into. Got it. And now, now that you, not that you want anything different, but what advice would you give to the younger Travis when you start to really pursue judo? Like, okay, I'm going after this, you know, again, not that you want anything different, but looking back, if you have a conversation with them. What did you tell them? Um, I probably would have moved to Boston sooner um, to start working with Jimmy at a, at a younger age. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if there was anything I could have changed or, or would have changed, but I guess from a, from a general standpoint on what I would tell somebody at like a younger age is the, <clears throat> the big thing for kids today is the level of professionalism and the age at which you have to decide is getting younger. The, so if you're, if you're looking at wanting to be a professional judo player, jujitsu practitioner, football player, it doesn't matter. If you're 16, 17 years old and you haven't made that decision and you haven't spent the last three or four years towards that goal, it's probably not going to happen unless you make some crazy breakthroughs. And I would say start gearing your life towards being a professional as soon as you can and make sure that everybody that's involved in your life um, supports that goal and that dream. And if they don't, then leave them behind because they're not going to be there at the end anyways. Yes, sir. Now getting that includes family. That includes family for me. Mother, father, like leave them. 
Got it. Now, getting close to the end of the interview, uh, for people listening for the first time, usually I put my final thoughts at the end. Sometimes I share some audio or something that connects with what we talk about. So right now, it's a rough time. We're recording this in August, basically uh, September 2020. Got the COVID going on. So I want to ask, what are you excited about? What's going on? I know that many difficult things happening, but during this time, what's some of the adjustments that you're making that, okay, I'm excited about this and what that is? Um, you know, like I said about the financial thing, like I'm, I, I see everything as like an opportunity to do something um, to benefit not only myself, but the people around me. So I, I got together with Jimmy and I, I somehow convinced him to sign on to starting a membership website. Um, we, we actually bought the URL usajudo.com, mm -hmm. um, trademarked it, trademarked the American judo system. And we're gonna, we're gonna give away basically all of our knowledge at one time inside a website for a monthly subscription. And it's gonna, I think every technique has roughly like 80, 80 videos to it. And it starts from like solo movement drills all the way to like advanced combinations with grip breaking into techniques, um, movement patterns. Um, it comes with uh, like 12 week developmental programs for techniques, uh, ranking systems, certification courses for coaches right. and athletes, um, dojo operations to help people run professional schools that are specifically geared towards martial arts and, um, you know, finding school owners that want to make, you know, 250, $300,000 a year from their school, doing it professionally and teaching them how you can start with 50 students and get to a point where you're making a quarter of a million dollars a year, all just through the sport of judo and jujitsu and making it work, really trying to get the community on board with professionalizing everything so that everybody can make a lot of money and, you know, live a lifestyle that they want to live, you know, instead of a nine to five where martial arts is now an afterthought. Like I'd like to get to a point where we can talk to BJJ world champions that don't feel like they need to teach private lessons or classes at a school. Like they're actual professional athletes that wake up every day and all they do is think about how they're going to submit the guy in the world final, not what that purple belt's paying them 200 bucks for the hour or what they're going to teach in the advanced class or, you know, how many members do they currently have because they got to run a school and train like that's not professional. Like I want you to wake up every day, make a healthy living and um, go win championships. And we're going to, we have a site building it out right now. It's actually on my screen that you can't see, but yeah. yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm excited for. That sounds I don't think they have anything like that in the world, do they? Nope. Yeah, that's really cool, man. It's some incredible work. Travis, thank you so much, man, for the interview. Really enjoyed and picking up all the, the tips too. That's why I want to ask more about the career about competition mindset and stuff like that. Once in a while I see some of your, your videos and I always like what you have to say. So man uh great job thank you so for all the listeners stick around for my final thoughts Oos.
Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with the three-time judo Olympian Travis Stevens. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, Travis is a judo and jiu-jitsu black belt and the owner of Fuji Gym in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Travis shared a little bit of his judo competition journey and his competition mindset that took him to win a silver medal at the Rio Olympic Games in 2016. Travis trained under Jimmy Pedro and his father. For those who don't know, Jimmy was a four-time Olympian and judo world champion, and he was also a guest on episode 101. When I asked Travis about some of the biggest lessons he learned from them, his answer inspired me to title this episode, Formulas for Success. He mentioned how there are formulas to win in judo, jiu-jitsu, and business. He said that it took him some time to understand how to win in judo, but when he finally did, it became easy to transfer to different parts of his career. Check out this quick clip from the interview. Jimmy was a professional coach and a professional judo player that gave professional advice, and I took it. So when I need to do something, I seek the help of professionals, I implement it, and then I look at the data and say, okay, well, this isn't necessarily working and we make adjustments because that's what they all do in business and in life. They, they take a common thing, they implement it, and then they make micro adjustments to the plan to get it to fit whatever it is they're doing. And that's, and that's pretty much all we do. It, it's basically a rinse and repeat process. Ask a professional, implement it, make adjustments to fine tune it for you. Boom, professional business. We had multiple guests talking about the importance of having mentors in life, and Travis was blessed to have such incredible mentors in his career. Now, what about you? Do you have someone that you can ask for advice, someone that has achieved what you're trying to accomplish? If you do, good for you. Keep it up. If you don't, it's time to look for one. To wrap up, I want to share with you Jim Rome's wisdom with this audio titled, Formula for Success and Failure. Oh, Here's the formula for success and the formula for failure. Here's the formula for failure. A few errors in judgment repeated every day. Why would we repeat an error in judgment another day? Here's why. Disaster doesn't usually fall on you at the end of that first day. If you suffer dire disastrous consequences the first day of mistakes, see, we would quickly change. I mean, overnight, we'd be burning the midnight oil, how to avoid and change it all so that these disasters don't happen again. But failure is subtle. Failure just takes you down the road you really don't want to go, but it doesn't seem like the consequences are gonna be severe at the end of the first day, at the end of the first week. But you can't let yourself get faked out. The guy says, I've been eating junk food for 30 days and look how healthy I am. See, he's faked out, he's misguided. He doesn't understand. You can't judge just after 30 days. I remember once I was talking to the kids about, you know, judging whether something is, you know, right or wrong to do it or not to do it. And I had a candle and I lit this candle and I said to the kids, I've heard that if I put my finger in this flame, this fire of the candle, that it will burn my finger. And the kid said, yes, it will. If you put your finger in this flame 
from the candle, it will burn your finger. I said, well, I don't really know, but I'm willing to try it. So I stuck my finger in the candle flame like this, and I said, my finger appears to be okay. And I did it again, pulled it out, and I said, my finger appears to be okay. And they all said, no, no, Mr. Roan. You can't judge whether or not the flame will burn your finger just by going like this. You've got to leave your finger in there just a little longer. <laughs> I got the message. And they got the message. You can't eat junk food for a, a month and say, look how strong I am. Because already you have started down the wrong road, but at first the consequences aren't disastrous. Your whole life isn't upside down. You haven't ru ruined your whole life and you're going to have a heart attack at the end of 30 days, no. But subtly, month by month, and a little more experience eating junk food, and sure enough, now the consequences would start to show. So here's what wisdom is. Trying to learn early the consequences of errors in judgment, poor behavior, poor language. And then try to learn from others that have gone down a, a disastrous road and sure enough they suffered the consequences and you say, wow, then I'm going to change direction because I don't want those consequences. That's called being doubly smart. Doubly smart. Learning from errors in judgment. Now here's the secret to success. A few simple disciplines practice every day. Now you're on the road to success. A few errors in judgment repeated. It's easy to repeat, but a few simple disciplines practiced every day, and you can turn anything around. Once you see that you're suffering either early consequences or severe consequences, all you have to do now is shut down that route, pick another destination and start going that way with some easy disciplines that day by day gather momentum, and now one success leads to another leads to another. Here's what we call that, disciplines. Easy disciplines. And then remember this in your personal development quest. All disciplines affect each other. Every discipline affects the rest. Every lack of discipline affects the rest. Every discipline you neglect affects the rest. What's interesting about success is starting a new discipline, a couple of new disciplines, and sure enough, once you've gained just a little bit of success in a couple of new disciplines, it'll inspire you to clean up the rest. It'll inspire you to fine tune all of your other disciplines. Each new affects the rest. Each lack of discipline affects the rest. So starting on this journey of new disciplines, solving problems, going from errors in judgment to easy disciplines that can change it all. And if you start that journey, it doesn't take long for new signs of success to appear. I got such great results that first year that I made these incredible changes, learning extra skills, putting together extra disciplines, working harder on myself than on my job. The early success, the early signs of the fact that I was gonna arrive at a more positive destination, I was hooked. It didn't take but a few months, less than a year, and I was hooked for life.
I ask you to start that same journey. Let your new skills, new disciplines affect all of the rest and inspire you to never cease this quest for refinement of first philosophy, then activity to make your life better. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, but the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com. 